Welcome to I Got Back Up, Getting Back Up With. I'm Talia Lazarus, your host, and in August 2021, my whole life changed. I was in a road accident which led me to 10 weeks of no walking, two knee surgeries, and learning how to walk again in my 20s. My journey took me on a physical, emotional, and mental roller coaster, and I was broken and lost in every way. But then I learned I had the ability to change my own life and write my own story. So join me as I share powerful life stories, exploring the power of resilience and perseverance. Sometimes we are confronted with unexpected challenges and moments that defeat us. And it's during these dark times we question everything and lose who we are. But the human spirit possesses an immense strength that allows us to rise above the darkest moments and find the courage to rebuild our lives in unexpected and extraordinary ways. Joining us today is the remarkable Derek Daly, a former Formula One and IndyCar driver. From the fast-paced tracks of Formula One to the high-speed corners of IndyCar, Derek was forced to process disasters and a fear at a young age quickly. Witnessing a devastating crash in his second F1 race in Monza to a life-changing IndyCar race, which split his car and left him with severe injuries, Derek continued to get back behind the wheel. How did Derek get back into a race car despite the fear? Why did Derek race again? How can you activate the driver within? Through processing disasters, navigating through fear, and finding the courage to get back on the track, join me through the life of Derek Daly. How are you today, Derek? I am good, Talia. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Oh, it's it's absolutely my pleasure. No need to mention it. So I want to know a little bit more, obviously, about, you know, your background, your past, everything that, you know, has led you up to where you are today. But first of all, where are you in the world? Because obviously, you're originally from Ireland, but where are you now? Uh, currently, I am in Indianapolis, Indiana. I have a home here. Uh, I spend most of the summer here. And I spend the winter in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. But it, as I look out the window, it is a spectacular day in Indianapolis. Well, as I look out the window, I'm not going to lie to you. It has just started pouring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't miss that at all. No, that is British summertime for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, very nice. Very nice. I'm I'm jealous. You're very lucky. <laughs> I, I I am very fortunate. I, I I truly truly am. So, like I said, what we're gonna do is we're gonna obviously talk all about you know where you are now, what you're doing, and kind of what led you to where. Um, but obviously, mm-hmm. what I want to do is I like to go back a little bit. So, you know, wherever you feel most resonates with your story, and kind of maybe your introduction into motorsports. So I was 12 years of age in Dublin, um, walking home from school one day, and I saw a big green truck uh, that came from England with Sydney Taylor Racing written on it. And I was mesmerized by this truck. And I went back to my dad, who was selling groceries. That was his job. He sold groceries at a local uh, neighborhood shop. And I said, there's a racing truck in our neighborhood. And he said, yes. And the lady who buys our groceries here, it's her brother who owns the racing car. And you can see it tonight at seven o'clock. We go back at seven. They open the doors in this beautiful white Brabham sports car with a green stripe and an Irish shamrock was on it. And I actually touched it. And to me, it was almost a a life-changing moment. Everything I dreamed about now, I was actually touching a racing car. And my dad said, you know, I'll take you to watch it race tomorrow. 
There was a small village on the outskirts of Dublin city called Dunboyne, and they hold a road race there every year. And so my dad took me out. We literally sat on a grass bank. This is back in the 60s. Uh, we watched the noise and the smell and the screeches and the color and the speed. And it absolutely changed my life right there. Right there. And then I told my dad I was going to be, become a professional racer, racing driver. Now, remember, we didn't even have a racing track in Ireland at the time. So that was a bit of a reach. But I told him, that's what I'm going to do. I, I was naive enough to think, well, you know, I didn't have time for a job because it would take too much time out of my day. How could I become a racing driver? I mean, I was that naive, but something clicked that day when I saw Sydney Taylor racing that literally, Talia, changed my life. I love that because sometimes people don't get those moments. I mean, sometimes people never get those moments, but sometimes people also don't get those moments till much later in life. And the fact that you had it so young and you kind yeah. of went with this big dream of that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And th there were an amazing steps along the way because I started racing when I was 16 doing um, demolition derby, jalopy, stock car type stuff. It was all I could afford. Uh, and you couldn't have a license to drive a car in Ireland till you were 18 back in those days. Um, and so pretty humble beginnings. But at the end of 1984, I think it was, myself and a friend of mine, David Kennedy, we lived in the small, the same small town. We realized if we both wanted to be racing drivers, we had to earn a chunk of money in a hurry. And so we became laborers in the iron ore mines of Australia for the winter of 1974 or five. And we were promised that if we worked hard, we could make 5,000 pounds, which at that stage was $10,000. We went down there, spent the winter. It was the dirtiest, hottest, loudest, most difficult, hardest, most enjoyable thing we'd ever done. And came back with 5,000 pounds. Now we had a budget we could buy a racing car, buy a Formula Ford. Formula Ford was the lowest rung of the ladder, but now we're in the game. And fairly basic beginnings and all sorts of things happened and we crashed them and we bashed them and we got in trouble and we still stayed focused. Look, let's give ourselves a chance to see where all this goes. And in 1976, um, I moved to England. I mean, you had to go to England. It was the home of professional motor racing. So no matter what races you won in Ireland, they really weren't against top class competition. And so I had a bit of money and I had a racing car. So I could spend the money living, um, but I couldn't race at the same time or I could race, but I couldn't live. So I bought an old uh, an old school bus took all the seats out of it, cut the back out of it, put some ramps into it. My mother made the curtains. My dad made the mattress. I put a toolbox, a racing car, and off I went. That was it. It was the summer of 1976 in England. Believe it or not, amazingly, as bad as the weather might be there today, 1976 was the last great hot summer that England had. Day after day, we had beautiful weather. So it was a great time for me to be a gypsy motor racing driver going from racetrack to racetrack, trying to make enough money with, by winning a race to go on to the next one. 
And it, it was an amazing time that was never planned, Talia. We never planned, this is what we'll do, this is how we'll do it, and this is how we progress. It was just, let's go. Let's go and see what happens. Let's just rely on our wits and, and see what happens. And at the end of 1976, there's a big race in England called the Formula Ford Festival. And 1976 happened to be that James Hunt won the world championship. And so that race was christened Tribute to James. Marlborough sponsored it. 150 drivers from around the world gathered at Brands Hatch in England, uh, um, uh, just outside London. And I happened to have a magical time. I won all the races, all the heats, all the finals. And James Hunt actually handed me the trophy. That was in uh, November 1976, right? Um, less than two years later, I was on the Formula One grid right beside James Hunt at Brands Hatch at the same racing track. It was just an amazing time of things that happened uh, and for me to get into Formula One so fast. I want to ask you then, how did, do you still remember, you know, feeling, how, how do you, you know, how, when you think back, do you still remember the feelings that you had and the thoughts that you had when you were suddenly on, you know, on the track yeah. next to James Hunt? Yeah. And I'm fortunate that I have the ability to retain certain experiences in HD video. It's so clear in my mind. Now, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but, but certain experiences are ingrained in my mind to such an extent that I can recall them with, with amazing clarity. And so I remember, I remember at Brands Hatch looking across, literally qualified right beside him. And sometimes tell you when significant experiences happen around yourself, you don't quite appreciate what's actually happening uh, at the time because it's hard to process and absorb everything. Whereas if you read about it with somebody else, you think, wow, look what happened over there. So, so in those days, things were happening so fast for me, it's hard to process and understand and appreciate it. It was only years after that you can recall with clarity what it was like to take those steps. And... Unfortunately, the car broke in the race, but that set me on a path of five years in Formula One, which led me to America, to the Indy 500, which led me to all sorts of things, good and bad. Um, um, but yeah, I, 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 some of the things are, are, are amazing. Uh, some of the experiences are amazing. The one thing that I loved the most about what you said as well was that you didn't have a plan. Uh, you kind of, I mean, yeah, you did. You knew kind of what you really wanted, the end goal, but you didn't have a plan to get there. No, no. And sometimes you have to jump. Sometimes you have to jump, even though you might ask the question, well, will anybody catch me? No, sometimes you have to jump. And 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 I had that internal wiring that allowed me to jump. Um, and when you jump tell you, you have to trust either yourself or the support people around you that it's going to be okay. And it's not always okay. Sometimes you jump and you jump into the fire 
and it's an experience and it's a lesson. Um, you know, I say to people, you're, you're, you're never beaten when you're knocked down. You're only beaten when you stay down. And, 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 and so, so you're right. We, we, we didn't have a work type plan. It was, it was instinctive, but we were going to at least jump and have a go. Yeah. And I think that's the most important thing. And I think what you said as well about you jump into the fire and it doesn't always work out. No, it doesn't. Sometimes you get burnt, but you learn, it's like the phrase, you know, learning from your mistakes and things like that. But then having, having trust that, even if you jump, no matter how big the jump, someone or somewhere, something will catch you. Exactly. Remember, even when you lose, you don't lose the lesson. And the lesson becomes part of this amazing platform that you build on, that you can jump even bigger and higher and faster and farther the next time. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, I completely agree. (laughs) I completely agree. And then, so... Before you kind of left um, Formula One, how was your time in it? I had some of the most amazing experiences. And and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was forced to mature and grow up rapidly. So my second Grand Prix was in Monza, Italy, arguably the most famous racetrack in the world. Um, and... One of the most, one of the biggest names back in those days was Ronnie Peterson. He was from Sweden. And Ronnie Peterson was a big hero of mine because I followed his career and I knew where he came from and he won races. And he was just one of those iconic, when you saw him, wow, there's Ronnie Peterson. And so at the start of the race, there was a big crash. On the run to the first corner, Ronnie Peterson got hit by James Hunt, car spun, hit the guardrail, and in those days, cars were nowhere near as strong as they are now. His car literally hit the guardrail. There were side fuel tanks. They literally exploded, and it looked like an airline accident. I was in the same accident. I tried to miss everybody down the left side, got hit, spun, uh, stopped my car at the side of the the, uh, track, looked around, jumped out, looked around, and the whole racetrack was on fire. And I couldn't believe what happened. When I ran back, I could see it was Ronnie Peterson, my hero. And so myself, James Hunt, Didier Pironi, Marzario, and somebody else, five of us gathered around this burning wreckage in an attempt to, we've got to get him out or he's going to die in the car. And it was one of those times where I was so scared the adrenaline was pumping so much. My eyeballs were going in and out like this. I could barely see what was going on. It was such a scary time. And we realized if you, if you, if you ran into the fire, it could be a disaster. If you didn't, it would be a disaster. So you're in a, a no-win situation. So there's five of us around. As it happened, James Hunt was the one. He jumped in, undid his belt, and grabbed him and threw him out on the ground right at my feet. And I could see he was still alive because he was able to move his arm. But I could see his legs were so badly damaged. They were like a rag doll. And I remember, this is, my, this is my second Grand Prix race. I'm looking at my hero, who's literally almost dead. The place looks like an airline accident. I walk back from the track to my pits and... 
a journalist starts to ask me what happened. And I couldn't tell him. I started to cry because I, I wasn't able to verbalize what I actually saw because, you, you know, I'd never experienced anything like, like that before. I go back to my pit. I'm with my um, um, my wife. Uh, I'm with my team. Uh, I'm with my family. I'm still trying to explain to them what I saw. And so after about 20 or 30 minutes, I could barely gather myself together. When my team manager came up to me, put his hand on my shoulder and says, the race is going to restart in 20 minutes. The spare car is ready. Pull yourself together. I thought, what? And I put my helmet on. You go completely emotionally cold and numb. I got strapped back in the car, went out and had an amazing race and finished my first top 10 in Formula One. And Ronnie Peterson died that night. Our hero, the, the one we all admired, the one you hoped you know, would last forever. And we knew he was dead and everybody in the paddock just packed up their stuff, got it to the airport because we were racing in um, uh, America at Watkins Glen the following weekend. So the show must go on. So do you see the type of experiences you're forced into that you have no training for? You just have to have the ability tell you to process disasters process it, make sense of it, and decide what's the route you're going to take to move on. And can you imagine that at such an early stage in my racing career? And they're just, you know, the type of experiences motor racing gives you because they say it's a colorful, glamorous, fast-paced, success-oriented, and very dangerous sport. And it's a bit untouchable, which is why so few go into it. But that was one of the one of the one of the the amazing experiences yeah and i think something really interesting about what you were you were talking about just now is it almost relates to a lot of things in life in the sense of processing stuff and we are, we don't you know we're not given a guidebook on how to deal with any disaster and anything and usually what happens is is we are suddenly you know there's disasters suddenly arrive out of absolutely nowhere and then what we have to do next is almost take it on ourselves and just learn how to get through it ourselves. Not me, not ourselves, but we're faced with it ourselves. You, you have to take the lead yourself. Mm. Um, and, and, and I always look at that as th there's an element of personal responsibility that leads us to the next jumping point. There's, there's an element of personal responsibility that we need to take. And when we make that decision, it's amazing the support group that comes around you to help you accomplish whatever that decision is. And, you know, I do a lot of corporate keynote speaking these days. And, and I, 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 I'm sure we're going to get into it. I had a big accident myself. But, but, but I talk to people and I'll tell the whole audience, whether it's, 200 people or 1,000 people. I said, I'm sure everybody has crashed here at some stage or you're going to hit the wall at some stage, metaphorically or whatever. And you're all going to be challenged on how you process it and how you move forward. And when you try and bring it down to personal responsibility, I love to see the audience go a bit blank and thinking, wow, he's talking to me. Yeah. I do have a personal responsibility. And quite frankly, Talia, not everybody can pick themselves up. 
that I always use the word pictures. I, I, I try to visualize where the next jumping point would be and where the next steps are. And once, because I'm a visual learner, uh, show me, don't tell me type of learner. And once I could visualize it, it was easier for me to drive towards it. And I think then with all of that in mind, before we obviously do get onto your crash, how, how as a driver then can you, you know, watch something like that? It's your second Grand Prix, watch something like that. And then, I mean, there must be fear involved, of course, but then get back into a car and then have a great race. I mean, how, how can you do that? And that's the ability to actually um, um, process something and put it away, put it behind everything that's going on at the time. Um, if you can't put it away, then you probably will never be successful as a racing driver because you'll be fearful. And you ask a racing driver, are you ever afraid? Oh, no, gladiator. They are. But they have the ability to put it away and hide it so as it's not up front and center. And I was never trained in that. But because I was so selfishly focused at the road ahead, you allow that to drive you and not the fear to stop you. That's a really interesting point because I once saw um, I once saw something online in exactly that way, which was, I think it was about skiing. And I think it said something about being off-piste skiing. And if you always focus on the trees, so the obstacles, you're more likely to crash. But if you just focus on the snow and the path, yeah. You're focusing on the direction you're going. Yes, yes. And, and, and it's easy to say that, but, but you have to have the confidence to commit to doing it. Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, of course it is. It's definitely that with the confidence. Of course, it's taking, yeah. action, on, it's taking action on that. Yes, yes, yeah. So obviously now I do want to talk about what happened to you and your crash. So in your own words, kind of what happened? So I moved to America um, in 1983 because I was fascinated by the Indianapolis 500. I had come from Formula One where our average lap speeds were 150, 160 miles an hour. In, in, in America, in the Indianapolis 500, you're not even going fast enough to qualify at 160 miles an hour average. And so they were doing 200 miles an hour. And I was fascinated by the edge that they ran towards um, the, the magnitude of the event. And so I came to try it just for curiosity and never left. My, my life just took a completely different turn, never planned, never expected it. But in my second year of IndyCar racing, um, I lost control of my car at about 219 miles an hour, I had one spin, made a direct concrete wall impact at 212 miles an hour, and the car literally exploded. Um, in the impact, um, I was obviously unconscious, so I don't remember all the crash bang stuff, but I have an amazing set of photographs whereby my mind is still active trying to protect myself, even though the car is smashed and destroyed and I'm already gravely injured. So after the impact, um, again, 
about two seconds before the car stopped rolling on the road, it was broken in half and my legs were actually dangling out the front of the car, bouncing off the road as the car rolled uh, to a stop on the racetrack. I remember all that so clearly. I remember the safety crew arriving. I remember the doctor arriving. He knelt down in front of me and I was asking him, uh, I happen to know his name, uh, Steve, I need a drink. And he wouldn't respond to me. He, 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 I asked him afterwards, I said, Steve, why did you not come up to me? He said, you were so gravely injured that my job at that time was to look into your eyes and to see if you went into shock, we had to react completely differently because we knew we could lose you very quickly. And of course, I never realized that. To give you an idea of the injuries, I was I was in uh, I was taken helicopter to intensive care. I was in I was in uh, intensive care for a month. I was in hospital for another month. I was in a wheelchair for another two months. I was in crutches for another two months. It was six months to the day before I actually stood up on my own two legs. Um, I had severe dislocations of my right foot and right ankle and I lost all the soft tissue on my heel because it ran along the ground at more than 100 miles an hour when I was trying to slow down. Um, I had a toe traumatically amputated on my left foot. I had a crushed left ankle that took a bone graft from my hip to rebuild the ankle joint. I had a double compound fracture of the left leg. I had a broken hip joint, broken pelvis, broken ribs, broken hand, broken arm, third degree burns. I had a lacerated liver. And just for a good measure... The blood transfusions were laced with hepatitis C. Back in the early 80s, there was no AIDS screening or hepatitis C screening. And as bad as my orthopedic injuries were, hepatitis C at that stage was known as a silent killer. Because people didn't have any pain, it just ate their liver, uh, which automatically killed them. And so I was in therapy for almost three years, learning how to walk, um, I had friends come in and said, are you going to go back to racing? And then an even more point of question is why would you ever consider going back to the sport again? And, you know, that was another time, Talia, where you're not prepared. You haven't been coached. There was no manual on how to almost be killed and how to recover and how to move on. And while I was on heavy pain medication, it's actually hard to think straight um, because you're, you're being chemically managed uh, as opposed to free to think straight and, and plan for yourself. But as the medication came, uh, began to come down, and by the way, that was another funny story. Um, I was on something called Percocet for pain. I couldn't eat, so I was on something called Tigon to help me eat. I couldn't sleep, so I was on sleeping pills. And then finally, the the doctor gave me a little blue pill. I looked it up. It was called Valium. I thought, if I'm on Valium, and he thinks I'm completely screwed up. So I called the doctor. I said, as of today, all the medication is going in the bin. I'm done. I have to completely clear myself on, uh, uh, of all the chemicals. I have to recover internally as well as externally. And he pleaded with me. He says, no, no, you can't do that because you have to wean yourself off. It'll be really bad. I said, I'm done. I was awake and alert for three and a half days and nights. I had the shakes. I had the sweats. I had the toxic feel. I would shout and scream. It was so bad. The room would spin every day. There was a wooden knot above the television. And if I didn't focus on that wooden knot all day, if I closed my eyes at all, the room would spin. 
I was in a terrible state. But after about four or five days, I had 30 minutes of a good feel. And then the next day, I had 45 minutes. Then I had an hour. Then I had two hours. And over the course of about a month, all the good times uh, overcame the bad times. And I was finally off all the medication. But again, the internal driver told me, I've got to heal myself. But here's the key. Here's the key that helped me answer the question my friends have asked me, why would I ever consider racing again? I thought back to my dad when I was 12. And I told him I wanted to become a professional race car driver. He told me two things back then. I didn't understand them back then. He said, I will help you in every possible way with your racing career, as long as, as, long as it isn't financial help you need. Completely understood that. And then he told me, he says, always remember, you'll be completely responsible for the legacy that you leave in the sport. Completely over my head. No idea what that meant until my accident. And suddenly thought, I would never want this to be the legacy that I would leave in the sport that I dedicated my life to. So once that light switch went on and he had the legacy conversation with me, I realized I had to recover. I had to get back racing. I had to get back to the gym. I had to go to physical therapy once a day or twice a day. I would rise in physical therapy in a wheelchair, then on crutches, by a little plastic bag of dried vegetables because I couldn't eat big meals. I was trying to eat dried vegetables to get nourishment inside myself, but I had to go to physical therapy because as soon as I could get strong enough, I had to get back in a racing car, A, to see could I drive it again, but B, to get back into the profession that would then allow me to control the legacy that I was able to leave in the sport. And less than eight months after my accident, I actually qualified to race again at the Indianapolis 500. Now, there's a rule at the Indy 500. You have to be able to walk to and from the car. Sounds simple, right? But the greatest hazard in the 80s was fire. When IndyCars went on fire, they wanted to make sure the driver was able to undo his belt and walk or run from the car. The only way that I could walk to and from the car is I had to have inch and a half heel lifts built into my racing shoes. So as I was like a lady's high heel boot, I could actually duck walk to the car and driving the car was easier than walking to it because it was non-weight bearing. And that year, which is 1985, was the only time I ever finished the great Indianapolis 500-mile race. I finished 12th. But here's the thing, Talia. I tell people, without, without my recall of the conversation to my dad, would I have taken the step and driven myself? Or without the personal responsibility, would I have taken the step and pushed myself? Or without the clear picture of where I can go, would I have taken the step? So do you see how my mind worked and how ultimately it's the personal responsibility and the structure that was personal to me to actually visualize where I was going that drove me back I became a full-time race car driver again. Um, 
My accident, it was the hardest crash impact a driver had ever managed to survive at that time. So it was high profile. Um, television at the time were interested, how did you survive? How did you make it? How did you get back? My television interviews turned into a 10-year contract. So while I back, was back racing, I suddenly became a television commentator. And then that led to another unplanned career for another 20 years after that. But the key steps, it's, it's, it's a bit like you, Talia. You know, I got back up. Your got back up ha ha has certain steps to it. Everybody's I got back up will have certain personal steps to them. But you got to commit to doing it. You got to commit. And I'm hardwired to commit selfishly sometimes. Maybe I'm abrupt trying to achieve it at some times, but I still think we all need that personal commitment responsibility to keep going forward because we all will get knocked down. We will. You better believe it. See, I'm just going to say this is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing because <laughs> I get to, so, you know, I get to meet people like you and, you know, obviously it's, it's to, you know, it's to motivate and to inspire so many other people to get back up, but it inspires me. And just listening to that, I mean, you just kind of, in a nutshell, yeah, explained exactly kind of exactly what I got back up is. And it is the, it's small steps and everyone's journey is very different. Everyone perceives it, everyone's perceptions, everything is so different, yeah. but everyone does have the power in their own way, no matter how deep, deep, deep inside yeah. to get back up. Yes. And the difficult times allows us to discover ourselves, allows us to discover what are we capable of and for me, it becomes a bit of a game. You watch me. You watch what I'm capable of. And, and, and Talia, ha, have you found that when you display that drive to get back up, people come around you. They, 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 they want to help you. They admire you. And very often, it, it causes something to click with them to say, oh, I could do that too. And, and and just think, just think of the movement we could have if everybody had that mindset. But I think that's probably what happened with me as well at the beginning of, 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 you know, of building this and of everything of my own journey. Speaking to people at the very beginning probably gave me those those moments of, wait a minute, I, I want to be able to do that. You know, yeah. I, I want to try this. You know, I, yeah. I want to run a half marathon, things yeah. like that. And yeah. it is yeah. a way of trying to inspire other people, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never go with the flow. The only thing I know that goes with the flow is dead fish. Never something to emulate. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like it. I think too many people do. Too many people do go with the flow. Um, but yeah. you can, you know, you can you can build the life of your dreams by doing it your own way. Yeah. And we never stop learning. You, the experiences keep coming. Sometimes they're small. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes they're unfortunate. But the experiences keep coming. And how can we use those experiences uh, to benefit us and potentially benefit 
a lot of other people, which is what you're doing, quite frankly. It, you know, if, if, you can, if you can affect the mindset um, of, of, of one or two people, mission accomplished. Yeah. 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 And it, it, all it takes is one person. You're right. All it takes is one person. Um, and then with all of that in mind, I want to, I want to bring up the question about fear again, because obviously we discussed it after, you know, you had the second Grand Prix, but yeah. now you've been in an accident. Um, I mean, obviously you've discussed how you were able to deal with it back then. And was it the same way after your own accident that you were able to kind of channel that fear and say, I'm getting back in a car? <laughs> That's a really interesting question because I'm going to give you a very honest answer. So before my accident, I was fearless. Um, I would, I, I, I would, I would take the chances. I would overdrive at times. Um, after my accident, I got hurt so badly that the pain of an accident of that magnitude was 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 going to stay with me forever i could compartmentalize it and put it behind me but i could never totally forget it and i believe from then on even though i won the biggest international races of my career after my accident i still think that bravery element and that ragged edge was never quite the same. Now, it's highly possible I was better because of it. But because I got hurt so badly, I could never quite put it behind me and never think of it again. And maybe that was another learning experience for me. Maybe that was another time I had to go through to understand that. Because, because... You know, when you're aware of what happened, you know, maybe there's a way to use that to your advantage in the years to come. You know, maybe the corporate keynote speaking that I do and I talk about this, maybe that maybe that gives somebody who listens to the story the confidence. Well, I'm not I'm not I'm not odd after all that that I still remember something that was that, you know, that was bad that happened to me. But I was able to go back. I was able to control the fear. I think that's probably a better word. I was able to control the fear sufficiently to be to continue to be successful. If we don't control the fear, maybe we put ourselves into into dangerous situations too often. Yeah, and I think with regards to fear, it's it's the kind of the thing of feeling the fear. Um, but not letting it stop you. So doing it anyway, even with the fear, and it is maybe that's a way of channeling it or controlling it, learning how to deal with your own fear. Yes, and you mentioned it earlier, we're all individual. We all have our own unique ways to deal with it, handle it, process it, and move on from it. Um, and your, your structure will be different to mine. There might be some things in my structure uh, that you say, huh, that's a good idea, or something in your structure that I would say, huh, I see, I got it, yeah, I get it. Um, by the way, the fact that you're even doing the podcast tells me your commitment to what you learned and spreading the gospel that, that potentially can, can help other people. But yeah, controlling the fear, 
controlling the fear is is big. If you don't, I think you'll probably die. Yeah, and I think even with that in mind, it's important for anyone listening and for people to know that we all get scared. We all, you know, we all have fears every, you know, some more than not, but we all get scared every once in a while. And, you know, we still do things, even when they scare us, we still do them anyway. And so my oldest son is now a professional racing driver, races at the Indy 500. I get the question all the time, what's it like? I would say to people, oh, I'm not scared. No, I'm not fearful. But I've seen him have accidents right from the time he was uh, 10 years of age in, in, uh, in, in go-karts. And when I see it and I become aware of it, my heart skips a beat. So I know, although I say I'm not scared and I'm not fearful, I know it's there, it sits there and it gets activated when I see something happen. So, so I, I, again, I, 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 I think you're right. It's, it, it, you, you have to find a way to uh, be, uh, be aware of it absorb it process it and then move forward move on from it yeah no i i completely agree and then with all of that in mind i want to ask what's what's some advice that you would give to somebody that's i mean there's two different ways we can look at it you know they've just gone through something that's completely you know life-altering whatever it is you know whether it's an accident or something very different and they're at that stage where they are too scared to take any step whatever it may be, yeah. what would you say to them if they came to you? As you process whatever happened, you don't have to process it overnight. If it takes a week or two or a month or a year, it's okay. You're going to process it in your own time. It's about, a bit like kids. Kids learn in their own time. They absorb and process information. I say to people, whatever level you got to, don't let that level be the standard for the rest of your life. That for me activates the internal driver to see what the next step is. I, I think there are more people that are visual learners that we really understand, uh, that we, we, we really know about in this world. So find something that activates your model of, of, of you, the person that's had the difficulty, whatever that is. For me, it was visualizing. For me to, to see the next road, to, to see the next stop down the road helped me get on the path. And sometimes it was slow, but process it in your own time. Pick something that activates your structure. For me, it was visual. Um, uh, for some people, it might be um, um, auditory, uh, wh wh whatever it may be. Get yourself a support system that understands you and where you want to go. And then to take the big step, you have to take the first step. So just keep taking the small steps along the route that you clearly see. Because as you take the steps, your confidence grows and as your confidence grows, the steps get bigger. As the steps get bigger, the picture becomes clearer. And suddenly, the disaster over here is in the rearview mirror. And we're taught in racing, only ever glance in that rearview mirror. If you stare in it, you guarantee it's a crash. Yeah, no, I uh, I love that. And it's, 
You know what I liked? It was activate the driver within because I think in everyone's own individual way, you can activate the driver slash the power that's within you. Yes, yes, yes. And you have a personal responsibility to do it. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I agree. I agree. And that's what you were saying before as well. It's, you know, you have done what you've done for your legacy, for you, for who you wanted to be. Right, right. And um, maybe people don't understand it, but I do. Um, um, and the self-satisfaction of, t- of taking certain steps. And by the way, all the steps I took were not the right steps. But that's... <laughs> that's that's how that's how you gain the experiences. That's how good and bad you you, you come up with storylines that affect people. Um, and you know, do I regret certain things I did? Probably, but not to the point where I can't sleep at night. You know, life is precious and life is short. So get that visual picture and keep going down the road to touch it and wrap your arms around it. Yeah. And of course, because that's the thing, if you regret too much from the past, you're looking, you know, way too long in the rearview mirror. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then my sport, you don't get far looking in the rearview mirror. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to ask them, what is your, on a, on a professional note then, what is your favorite, if you have a favorite, because there might be more, but what is your favorite memory when you do look back on your time in motorsports? Wow. So in 1977, I met a very large man from Donegal in Ireland who had the heaviest, thickest Northern Irish accent. His name was Derek McMahon. We called him Big D. A lot of people call him the King of Donegal. He was a big, loud, boisterous guy. He got himself in trouble all the time. But he said to me, after I won the Formula Ford Festival, when Jameson gave me the trophy, he said, I will help you take the next step to Formula 3, the British Formula 3 championship. That was the next um, um, legitimate step professional drivers had to take if they were going to try and get to Formula 1. And so in my, uh, and my best friend at the time was a guy called Gary Gibson. Gary Gibson was from Belfast. I bought my first Formula Ford from Gary Gibson. We became thick as thieves, best friends. And Gary always thought, Gary always thought that he was going to get a phone call to say that I had died. And ironically, I got the phone call to say he died at 39 years of age. But the reason I'm I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up, my favorite photograph in my whole career is me standing about to get strapped into my car on the grid at Brands Hatch in my very first Formula One race. And there right beside me is Big D with a smile on his face. And right beside him is Gary Gibson, the two most important people in my life who believed in me, helped me in so many ways. And I have the picture framed actually just outside here. But it is by far the most, my favorite photograph because it embodies everything. Mm-hmm. We all had a bit of a dream. Big D was never going to be a professional racing driver like me. But if he could contribute to somebody, live vicariously through me, he wanted to do it. Gary Gibson wanted to be like me. 
And there we were from the early stages of, of, of crashing and bashing against each other on the grid in Formula One. So it wasn't a result, um, uh, you know, a podium or anything like that. It, it was a moment in time that somebody captured on a photograph that to the day I day will, will remain to be the, the, the favorite photograph of my life and my career. See, that that brings a smile to my face because moments are priceless. Literally, moments are priceless. And if you can look back and you can have those kind of moments and those memories, those you hold with you, I think, a lot longer than a lot of other things. Uh, uh, Absolutely. And I have a file this thick of stuff that I did with Gary Gibson and photographs. And it was just so precious. I put it away. I take it out every now and then because he died at 39 years of age, by the way. Big D died at 72. He, uh, uh, <laughs> they, they both went too early, but the moments with people that are so personal are standouts for me because they saw all the moves I was trying to make and stood from the sideline and were aghast at some of the things that happened. But they were there right beside me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, again, it's for, it's for anybody, the people that are around them, with them through their journey. Um, I think don't underestimate that. Exactly. They're living it. You just don't (laughs) understand that they're living it with you. You don't appreciate it at the level um, um, because, you know, the disaster is happening around you at the time, but there's a lot of other people living through the process of how do we get through this? Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, I'm, you glad, know you, I'm glad you went through difficulties because, you know, I wrote a book uh, about developing racing drivers and I never won a Formula One race, but the legitimacy of me being able to write the book was the experiences that I had. And, and, and what legitimizes you to do a podcast like this is you've been there. You've been in the trenches. You've been injured. You've had the questions. You've wondered, why me? You know, you've probably cried. And so the, the trenches is, is, is an unusual place that not everybody gets to. But when you do get there, it, don't you find it gives you a different foundation for the types of questions to ask? And once you hear the answer, it reminds something that you did or saw and, and, and it just leads you to unfold these amazing conversations. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure it was painful for you and I don't know all the details, but there, 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 there was a good reason that you, you, you went through all that. You know, it's, it's really interesting that you said that because, um, as I was wheeled into the hospital, I've just had my accident. I've just come out of the ambulance and I'm wheeled into the hospital. And um, I turned to somebody and I said, I, I, these words came out of my mouth. I said, everything happens for a reason. And they looked at me and they went, tell me what this reason is. I yeah. said, I don't know yet. Yeah. I haven't figured it out, mm-hmm. but I will. Yep. 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 And as my, as my Irish mother, who's 90, Five and still healthy as she always says there's nothing bad that couldn't be worse yeah 
No, I absolutely, really, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And you're right in a way of, of, of when you've been through something yourself and you do speak to people, you know, when you hear their story and you hear what they've been through, you can relate, even if the stories are so different, yeah. you can relate because yeah. it does take you back to a time where ironically, we actually all have been through it, but in our own way. Yeah, 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 I agree, I agree. No. Anyway. So I just want to ask them before we do finish, how, how are you doing now? Good, good. I, 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 physically, I'm in remarkable shape. I've had 19 surgeries. I have a surgically fused left ankle. What that means is they run four screws up through your heel, up into your leg to, to fuse the ankle. I have a fused uh, big toe on my right ankle. I've got an implant on my right foot. But the only thing I can't do is... Um, is uh, running the Olympics or play soccer at Manchester United. You know what? I was never good enough for that anyway. <laughs> so I don't miss, I don't miss uh, not being able to do anything like that. I'm able to do pretty much what I want all day, every day. I, I think I, 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 uh, I healed uh, uh, remarkably well and you know, whatever, uh, whatever I need to adjust to physically, I just adjust to it. People don't know. I don't shuffle. I don't limp. People would never know that 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 uh, I have all these uh, orthopedic injuries, and so I consider myself extremely fortunate. Yeah, that's a really nice way to to think about it and put it into perception. So it mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um. So are you a are you a Manchester United fan? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> old Trafford. But, I remember well, the old, the match days. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Dennis Law. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll try not to mention then that I'm an Arsenal fan. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so you're still carrying an affliction. <laughs> maybe, maybe just a small. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure Thank to speak you. to you. Next, by the way, when Arsenal play United next year, well, next season, so not long to go, I'll, uh, I'll be thinking of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, 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 good. Okay. <laughs> well, it's been yeah. a pleasure to have you on today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share? No, we covered it all. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Talia. Thank you for taking the time. And good luck. This is going to grow big and big and bigger. Derek's story is a powerful reminder that no matter how challenging life gets, we can navigate through any disaster and emerge stronger on the other side. It's up to us. So this week, activate the driver within you. How often are you looking in the rearview mirror? And how long are you looking? Are you glancing or are you way too focused on what is behind you? It's time to look ahead, look at the track and focus on the drive. Stay tuned for more incredible stories and thank you for joining us. Until next time, remember that you too have the power to get back up.